Hello and welcome to the December episode of Brainscape. Today we're going to be exploring stories, Santa and otherwise, uh, and I'm here with... Jacqueline. And Merlin. And do you guys want to briefly explain what level you're doing or uh, what things you're studying as well for... Oh yeah, so I'm studying psychology, I'm in level four, um, yeah, just getting all the assignments and dissertation done, it's a mm-hmm. lot of fun, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am an exchange student, I'm also studying psychology, and right now I'm preparing for four essay. Uh, no, sorry, exams, which is just wonderful. Mm, sounds fun. <laughs> I'm Amelia Hilton, I'm a level two undergrad psychology student, and I am the host of the podcast if you haven't listened before. But we're going to get right into it. So because this episode is themed on stories, what were your favourite stories when you guys were children? Um, I really liked a story that my parents made up for me. So um, for Christmas, because it's December, right? Um, my parents used to tell me that the Christkind, which is the some parts of German version of Santa Claus. Um, <laughs> Merlin's very upset. <laughs> he's, he's disagreeing. Not my part. <laughs> well, my, the part where I'm living, um, we, we believe in the Kistkind. So my parents, we would um, be sit- sitting under level one in our house and um, my mum would go downstairs, flash the camera lights and um, then that would be the signal for the Christkind came in and gave us all our presents. So then that would be the signal for us that we would be able to go downstairs and suddenly all the presents were there uh, i really love that as a child always waiting for that flashlight that's very like clever for your parents as well so that they so have time to set up no yeah. i mean the chris kent yeah, has time chris to set up the exactly. presents it's very very elaborate yeah. plan mm. what about you merlin what was your favorite story? um so i mean yeah we, we we had santa claus and stuff but i um when i started to be allowed to watch well, movies and stuff. Um, Harry Potter was a big thing, especially the first one. And for some reason, uh, the first Harry Potter movie always gives me like a Christmassy vibe. Yes. There's a lot of scenes in the snow. There's actually the Christmas scenes, the Great Hall, and the whole movie is really warm. Mm. It's like in like warm orange colors, um, in contrast to the later movies, which are more gray, black, greenish. Um, yeah, so I always liked watching Harry Potter. Mm. What about yourself? I used to have this book. I can't remember the name of it, but it was a really beautiful illustrated book that my dad used to read me about a girl in Wales, I think, who whose dad is a fisherman and she discovers a mermaid in the water and they become best friends. Oh. And she gets to live as a mermaid for a while. It's really tragic because they have to separate to go about their own lives. Uh, it was a really nice story. Yeah. If, I, if I remember it, I'll share it <laughs> if anyone wants to read it. <laughs> Definitely. Our speedy studies as well, I think, are also about stories yeah. and myths. So today's timer is the classic movie soundtrack kind of effect when people have flashbacks and remember stories, which is... So it's quite a lot nicer than some of the <laughs> so nice, ones so nice. that we've had. The Halloween A gentle interruption. Yeah, exactly. All right. Who wants to go first? Um, I'll give it a try. Yeah, I'll give sure. It a try. Let's see whether it can make it work. Do you want to give a, 
brief abstract for your yeah, Swedish study. Yeah, so I'm going to talk start. about the original purpose of the Grimm's Tales. Okay, you ready? Yes. Three, two, one, go. So uh, stories such as Snow White or Cinderella are quite deeply embedded in our childhood memories and also within the European cultures and often um, associated with the Grimm brothers. Um, however, the original stories published by the Grimm's differ quite quite a lot from the ones that we know in the Disney movies and were actually not really intended for children. Mm. Um, so actually the Grimm's work was part of a wider political movement in Germany at the time um, because the country was split in 200 principalities and many people wanted to see them united as a single nation. To achieve that end, many writers and thinkers were turning to traditional folklore tales to explore and define a kind of German national identity. Um, so the theory was that these stories passed down from one generation to the next contained the collective hopes, fears and morals of the German people. Um, the German, uh, the Grimms weren't the only ones putting together the collection of folklore, but um, their work is the one that became best known. Mm. <gasps> was that? Yeah, that's it. That's amazing. You got it underneath. Well done. Wow. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah. Oh, that's really, I never even knew that that was... The reason the yeah the stories exist and the stories are much more brutal actually the stories mm. are pretty grim so, um for instance for Snow White I picked out an um example um it wasn't actually the stepmother in the original version it was her own mother for oh. Snow White yeah. um she didn't just want the heart she wanted the liver and the lungs as well and when the mom discovered that the huntsman hadn't actually killed Snow White um. He's, she sets out to kill her in three different ways, through an overly tight corset, um, a poisoned comb, and um, finally with a poisoned apple. And I think in the Disney movies, she's just like being pushed off the cliff. Mm-hmm. But actually, in the Grimm's version, she was forced to dance, dance herself to death um, in a pair of red hot iron shoes. Ouch. Yeah. yeah. Definitely yeah. There are um, old movies from the GDR they use these tales a lot and they are a bit more a bit more yeah. grim than uh, a bit more brutal than uh, uh, so for example the snow white one there is actually the scene with the comb and everything and then in the end the um, stepmother it's a stepmother but uh, she's forced to eat the poison apple as well mm. yeah yeah a bit more grim yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh grim grim exactly <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you want to go next with your Swedish study, Marilyn? Sure. So what is your abstract? Um, so I um, took a study that looked at how we take errors from actually fictional stories but interpret them as facts and rely on these, well, wrong facts um, in, like, well, general knowledge settings. Okay. Are you ready to start the timer? Yes. Three, two, one, go. So as I said, they looked at... Um, how we learn errors from fictional stories um, and how that may be prevented because obviously it might pose a problem. And they conducted basically three experiments. Um, In the first one, they had three groups. One was warned before that the story they would read is fictional and contained information that was close to reality but not correct. Um, One got a warning after reading it and one got no warning. So they read the short stories and then answered general knowledge questions And the result was that uh, the story reading led to, well, misinformed answers. So not just wrong answers, but clearly uh, misinformed answers based on the stories in all conditions. Um, There was a little less uh, reliance on these uh, facts in the warning conditions. Mm -hmm. So in the second one, they warned everyone um, and varied the reading difficulty to see if maybe like a more easy text is um, influencing that. But there was no 
no difference uh, between the easy hard text. <laughs> and in the third one, um, they basically again uh, warn people, but now every time the people would come across a wrong fact that would warn them, um, and that led to some reduction mm-hmm. um, in the reliance on these facts, but still people uh, use these fictional facts um, to answer real-life questions. That's really interesting because when you think about dramatization of real events like The Crown or Mindhunter or anything in movies that says based on a real story, yeah. it's, it must be a difficult decision to kind of decide when you make something dramatic and interesting for an audience compared mm-hmm. to still representing the true facts or gist. Yeah. Definitely. There's also been a lot of research done with um, false information published in newspaper articles mm. and how people um, still, like, even if the newspaper then says, oh, um, actually they retract the information, um, the people will still remember and believe in those false facts who were published in the first yeah. instance. So actually within the media you can do quite, cause quite a lot of damage yeah. um, even if you retract the information later on. Yeah, We looked at that in social psychology and within like, within, like fake news. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of effort to, like, reverse the effect of fake news, which, I mean, is a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, All right. What was your speedy study? I looked at Carl Jung and archetypes. Ooh, so deep I'll, stuff, deep stuff. Yeah. I'm going to start the timer in three, two, one. So Carl Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who lived 1875 to 1961. And he believed humans are born with heritable psychic structures called archetypes that influence the way all humans experience the world. And some argue that the archetypes can be seen in myths, legends, and even modern stories and films across all cultures. And that was part of his evidence for the idea that they exist in everyone. And this was a counter theory to Locke's blank slate theory, which believed that everyone is born with no preconceived ideas or understandings. And Jung and Freud actually worked together quite a lot in their careers and both studied the subconscious but then pursued different ideas. So Jung saw the psyche being split into the conscious and unconscious realm. The unconscious was split into the personal, which was made from your own personal history, and then the collective unconscious, which is an underlying kind of set of beliefs, ideas and concepts that everyone is born with. And Jung coined the term active imagination. I am over time as always uh, but I'll keep I'll keep Youngie on that was a really bad joke but I'll keep it in it's fine um, so and active imagination is the process where the individual interacts with archetypes images and symbols from their unconscious through artistic mediums and stories is a big part of that and the stories or these artistic mediums allow us to define which archetypes are in our subconscious realms and then integrate them into our understanding of our everyday kind of normal lives and a quote from Carl Jung which I really liked was archetypes create myths religions and philosophical ideas that influence and set their stamp on whole nations and epochs Mm. which is really interesting yeah I don't know how much I believe in (laughs) archetypes I read some criticisms which were saying they're mostly just reflecting common elements of human interaction Mm. and some of them and there's no 
he never actually wrote down a list of what these archetypes were or fully defined them. And there's like an ever-expanding list that people keep adding to. But there was the hero, the anti-hero, the like young maid, uh, who's like the symbol of innocence and pureness and all that kind of thing. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not that convinced on it. But that's an interesting little. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's an interesting idea. So this next section is going to focus on lying and how that's integrated into stories. So who wants to go first with their research? I can start. Um, so I looked into how people uh, embellish their stories, so how they add to things. You know, when your dad tells a story about his childhood and, I don't know, the jump he made becomes longer and longer and longer. <laughs> At some point you start questioning um, whether he ever made that jump. And um, so there's a couple, uh, there's no like really unified uh, theory behind this, but there's a couple of ideas where this might stem from. Mm-hmm. So obviously there are many reasons to lie, um, to avoid punishment, to get something, um, yeah, to feel powerful, to feel good. But um, so these embellishments are usually, I mean, in, in their extreme forms, are observed in people that usually have a high status, have uh, like f- a good social economic standing. So the question really is, why would these people lie um, and maybe even put their high status on the line um, when there's no, I mean, there's nothing to be gained, really. Um, so one idea is that this actually uh, based on pathological lying, mm-hmm. which is a condition where people would just repeat uh, untruth or lies that are just repeated yeah over and over over years and they become sort of a lifestyle and a way to just express themselves and the lies are interwoven with reality in very complex narratives Um, um, some authors even argue that this is based on neurological defects like Ford in 1999 or Dyke in 2005 Um, then there's another theory that basically just says that Whenever people tell stories, they just shape them a little bit to fit the social interaction because um, different audiences might uh, react differently. And the storytelling is not simply to inform, but it's also to, um, well, yeah, engage with people. Mm -hmm. And that leads to, well, slight alterations, um, either to impress people or make it seem more dramatic, um, all these kind of things. And these social contexts shape the stories. And because they're usually told multiple times, people, whilst telling their story, also start remembering it slightly different. And that just adds up. And uh, in the end, the whole story might have changed quite a bit over the years. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think it does make a lot of sense, though, because I feel like when you tell a story, most like most of the time, it's also to entertain, and then that yeah. social what that you gain by and like people laugh at your story, people think you're funny, or like people think you're interesting, because a lot of the time when you tell a story about something that happened to you, give information about yourself. Yeah. Um. So I feel like I definitely have noticed doing it myself, mm. and even like kind of consciously realizing, wait, like why am I not even really being like I am aware that I'm doing it, but it's like oh wait a minute why am I doing yeah. 
I think people give you more license as well in yeah. a situation where you're like telling a group of people a story I think people often or my friends are often like did that really happen I'm like mostly <laughs> <laughs> mostly that happened but it's yeah. I think people expect that kind of thing to happen a lot yeah. of the time but then it's difficult if you've told someone the story before in maybe it's true form and then add some embellishments if you've got a friend who calls yeah. you out on that kind of thing and then it just gets really embarrassing yeah and i feel like that is what's happening a lot with families yeah so you come together you know you have your family meetings maybe like annually and then you're like wait a minute <laughs> last time yeah <laughs> yeah mm. has anyone any um at any point called you someone called someone out for embellishing a story. I've definitely called my mum out for doing that. But yeah, again, it's often my family. <laughs> yes. I don't have a specific example, but I know that it has happened. Yeah. With friends and family. Yeah. Especially sometimes you have you even have someone with you that has has been there and they're like, um Standard, maybe standard. not. <laughs> yeah. Well talking about families and parenting, did you look at parenting by lying? Yeah, so um parenting by lying is a pheno phenomenon um that is investigated by researchers, um, which basically just amends, examines the effect of parents lying to their children. Um, so according to Santos et al. in 2017, um, higher instances of parenting by lying um, has been found to be correlated with um, higher instances of lying to parents by the children, mm. um, psychosocial maladjustment, antisocial personality problems, and externalizing behaviors in adulthood. So quite a bunch of problems <laughs> here associated with parents lying to their children. Mm. Um, I looked at this specifically because um, a lot of children have been told by their parents, um, like me with my Chris Kinn story, mm -hmm. that um, yeah, presents would be brought by Santa Claus or the Chris Kinn or whatever um, you like religious or cultural figure people believe in. Um, so a recent study by um, Estra Malm at the Murray State University examined the impact of parenting by lying on childhood beliefs and fan fantasy characters. Characters? <laughs> What's wrong? <laughs> Such as Santa Claus. So she hypothesized that parenting by lying would be positively associated with um, a belief in more fantasy characters. Um, so, for instance, if you were to believe in Santa Claus, you would also be much more likely to believe in the Easter Bunny. Um, you believe it for a longer period. And um, you also have much higher unpleasant reactions when you find out the truth. Mm. Um, yeah. She actually found a correlation between um, parenting by lying and the belief in more fantasy characters, um, the belief for a longer period, and indeed more unpleasant reactions to the truth, mm. um, as well as you're much more likely to actually lie to your parents. And she also hypothesized that the belief in fantasy characters such as Santa Claus would be positively correlated with more stress, anxiety, and depression, mm. and um, personality. Um, so. Um, such as higher um, levels of neuroticism, conscientiousness, agreeableness, and so on. Um, she found out that um, unpleasant reactions to the truth were indeed correlated with neuroticism, and the belief for a longer period was negatively correlated with openness to experience. Mm. Um, but she didn't really find an effect on well-being as measured by the anxiety, stress, or depression. So while 
the study kind of suggests that there may be some correlation. It's really important to emphasize that it's only correlational studies um, and they used university students um, examining their retrospective memory. Mm. So um, even though they met, there might be some ground to assume that there's some sort of link between um, parenting by lying, um, it's n they can't really establish that with the evidence that they've given. So we need much more research and much more robust research to actually establish such a link. Um, their um, correlation values were also really low, so mostly co Pearson correlation values between um, 0.18 and 0.23, so rather low, not really giving us a strong, um, strong evidence here. Um, but I do think that while the evidence is not necessarily super robust, it addresses quite um, an interesting question. I think, Merlin, you've mentioned that when we talked about it, um, that like the question whether it's ethical for parents to lie to mm. their children and support such an invented story, because after all, um, I quite liked when you pointed that out in the preparation, um, that it's just you kind of make up a whole lie about a character that just brings presence to the children and whether it's really like ethical and necessary to um yeah lie to your children about such a character um so yeah i think it's a it's interesting and we don't have much support just now but definitely an interesting question to examine yeah i have seen on facebook as well some points people sharing posts where teachers for example have said please don't say that the most expensive gifts that you buy your children are from Santa because that will mean if there are multiple children that go to the same school and one of them gets a cuddly toy from Santa whereas someone else gets an iPad, mm -hmm. then that can be a really oh, yeah. horrible experience yeah, for the children who receive less gifts. But I guess it's a hard balance between... I mean, I remember enjoying the illusion of Santa and I think quite definitely. a lot of children do, but if it does have those kind of effects potentially from potentially, the study yeah, yeah. then yeah. it's difficult do you choose to lie to your child so that they can enjoy that illusion and experience with potentially the disappointment and that kind of thing that comes from it or do you not do that but then perhaps it's more difficult for them to enjoy those christmas time traditions and like integrate with other children mm -hmm. that believe santa exists and yeah, it's a really interesting debate. I think especially in like, um, depending on what context you live in as well, because I lived in a, like a rural, very rural area of Germany where people believe in the Christkind and not a Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like right, that's, that's more S. That's so um, yeah. people will mostly <laughs> believe in the same, because like my peer group was very homogenous, so people will believe in the same thing. Whereas like if you live in a more culturally diverse background, go to a more culturally diverse school, um, pe children might have a very different reaction to it as well. Mm -hmm. um, or so even just celebrate completely different yeah uh, not even half like christmas yeah, yeah. so then there time. might be like potential conflict with that as well yeah that you don't really believe in it if you feel that one of your pairs is not like really believing in yeah. santa claus or whatever yeah. But yeah. what still strikes me is how much effort is put into this yeah like it is an immense effort to well because it's 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 constructed socially but it's also within each family there's a story and then someone some uncle has to basically leave his family for christmas <laughs> to come and bring presents and um i know i just found out that at some point it gets annoying to the parents because my dad uh, just told me that my little sister still believes in santa claus and he he's getting quite annoyed because <laughs> he still has to dress up like well he's not dressing up but he still has to like kind of make a little bit of a 
scheme when giving her the presents mm. and uh, she writes quite extensive lists for Santa because I mean it's Santa yeah. right yeah it's quite a hard balance I think to yeah find. well aside from lying and storytelling we also looked at ways storytelling can benefit learning so did you look I think you looked at maths was yes. it geometry in storytelling. I looked at geometry and storytelling, which is probably not the first thing that comes to mind yeah. when talking about learning and storytelling. Um, but I actually uh, really like the study. Um, so it's by um, Casey et al. And it was conducted in 2008. Uh, and one thing that should be pointed out is that, that it was specifically conducted in, a, in an environment where the children were... Uh, so it was a high-poverty urban community, uh, a lot of diversity... Um, well, and a lot of poverty amongst the children. Um, and they looked for ways to um, increase the math skills because they it was found that um, students from those um, backgrounds actually have a high risk of um, developing very poor math mm-hmm. skills. So um, this was all done in a, in a kindergarten preschool context. Um, and they used the Tan and Shape Changer book by... Shiro et al. 2002, which involves a book, a poster, and materials needed for different activities. Um, so um, this involves telling the story, chants, movements, poems to be integrated into the lesson. Um, the learning itself was assessed through a transfer of skills using like a pre-post design. Um, and they had an intervention group and a control group. And um, so it was basically what they did is they had uh, tasks with geom- geometry puzzles. That was like the near transfer task, and they also had a far transfer task, which used a very wide uh, variety of puzzles um, in a geometric sense. Um, so they compared the two types of intervention after a while to determine the effectiveness, and um, it was shown that the storytelling context, so with the whole storytelling and chance, whatever, was more effective than a decontextualized form of learning geometry, which we probably all experience in school, um, for the near transfer task and the for transfer task. And um, for some reason, there was also a gender effect. So across uh, the study, girls benefited more uh, than boys from the geometry content interventions. Um, but they benefited like more from with the story and without the story. So in overall, they just benefited more from the education. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't look further into this, but I um, think it was really cool to show that basically, a, I mean, it's a very low-cost intervention, um, actually had quite a big impact um, at such a young age in mm. a very important skill. Mm, definitely. It's quite interesting as well, the gender effect as well, because, I mean, a lot of girls, I feel... Always like, oh, I'm not so good at math. Yeah, definitely definitely can um, (laughs) say that from personal (laughs) experience as well. So I think um, if that really helps to maybe encourage girls specifically to also like get a bit more into the STEM subjects, that would be really, really valuable tool and technique to use. Yeah, I feel like it would have been interesting if they would have like made this a longitudinal thing to see whether the kids that started geometry within this, well, it's probably a fun context, yeah. then went on to like math more and maybe be engaged more, even when math becomes 
maybe a little more nitty gritty, a little less fun for most people. Um, that would be really interesting. Yeah, definitely. For for how long did the intervention go on? That is a very good question. <laughs> Was it just like a one session intervention? No, I think they actually so like the the I don't know what the period was. I can look that up. Um, but the usual teaching period that they would use to teach that specific so it was about like uh, like standard shapes, mm-hmm. like rectangular shapes, triangular shapes, maybe some special forms. That's why they used like the puzzles. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the period which whichever they would use usually was just well for one group infused with the storytelling. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, I do not have the. Oh, that's all. Don't right. worry. Yeah, I can look. Mm-hmm. What did you look into? I looked at general cognitive development and storytelling. So in Piagetian theory, constructing stories is a key factor in development and it occurs during the sensory motor stage, which happens sort of from age two onwards. And I looked at how specifically stories within the classroom have been shown to benefit engagement and learning. So O'Brien et al. in 2018 say that stories in the classroom provide realistic and authentic ways to capture students' attention, helps them listen and learn more actively than other forms of instruction. Because they used a metaphor, uh, it provides a vehicle to bring facts to life and make the abstract concrete. So it's one way of putting sometimes quite difficult ideas in the context of the real world. And when reading or hearing stories, different parts of our brains actively track different aspects of the story in a similar way to if we're experiencing those events firsthand. So it's really good for engaging multiple areas of the brain. And students can be active participants in the story and help co-construct it, although that might be difficult in a teaching situation if you've got lots of children uh, adding lots of things to your story. Uh, And neuroscience studies have found storytelling engages areas of the brain related to cognitive control, emotion, empathy and social norms. And then that was in uh, elementary age children. But in university students, Mormon in 2015 found that students recall information tied to storytelling much better than material presented without storytelling. And the information was recalled more successfully within the current semester examinations and then also over the long term. So it's a way to kind of instill what you're trying to share over both the short term and the long term. And then Paul Zak, this is my last point, don't I? <laughs> Paul Zak says, stories capture our attention better than other information because they leave a physical and emotional trace mm-hmm. on the brain. And they've got a nice quote. As social creatures who regularly affiliate with strangers, stories are an effective way to transmit important information and values from one individual or community to the next. Stories that are personal and emotionally compelling engage more of the brain, thus are better remembered than simply stating a set of facts. Definitely, so. yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty good technique. And I guess it also goes back to if you look at different models of memory, semantic processing, if mm-hmm. you believe yeah. in that is more effective than sort of simple memorization. So Yeah, especially because um with the whole aspect of like deep um deep learning, so trying to embed like um at meaning or context to a specific fact and if it's very cohesive i believe then um it's much easier to be storytelling in the brain yeah <laughs> yeah definitely yeah also helps you recalling it because i mean if you just have like a random list like just accidentally leaving out things it's pretty easy mm-hmm. but if you have like like a red line that you follow mm-hmm. um 
then, then you realize when you've missed something. yeah you you might at least realize yeah maybe not remember <laughs> it but then know that you need to study it but then you more. can panic yeah <laughs> so I, I also did find the length of the intervention okay <laughs> so they started in october um and uh yeah so the intervention was basically done in january and then after two weeks um they were tested again okay. so quite a long time a long yeah a yeah. couple months uh, actually that maps on really well into um the next topic which is about um storytelling in therapy mm -hmm. um so you've been talking a little bit about how um we remember um, things better if it's told in a story. Um, so I'll come to that later, but mm -hmm. let me give you um, a little bit of context. So uh, we're exposed to stories as part of books, um, daily anecdotes, movies, and so on, um, and teaching, as we've now learned. But storytelling can also be employed in as part of psychotherapy. Um, I actually recently read a book um, written by George Bouquet. I don't know whether I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, it's called um, Let Me Tell You a Story. It's a very nice book. Um, in the book, the protagonist tells us about um, his encounter with his therapist, um, Dort. Um, he's a very unconventional psychoanalysist who approaches the protagonist's um, problems in a rather unconventional way. So what he does is um, the, the um, therapist tells the uh, client a story every single day. can range from classic fables to modern stories, folk tales and so on. And um, those stories are reshaped by the um, psychoanalysis to match up with the client's um, problems. Um, mm. So in short, they're just stories that can help the client, but also they map really well onto the reader's problems, fears, um, and just basically motivate you to achieve happiness and personal growth. Um, it's a very, very good book. I highly recommend it. Mm. We can maybe like link it underneath. Yeah, definitely. Don't problem here. <laughs> and um, so there's a couple of ways on, um, that's one, of exa one example um, how you can use stories as part of um, psychoanalysis or just psychotherapy. Um, so in 2007, um, one of the experts called Bregner um, published an article where he explains that um, we can use stories as part of um, psychotherapies um, if they're tailored to the patient's or client's dilemmas um, because they can help see the client um, to kind of take a step back. So if you're listening to um, a story that's quite well tailored to your own problems, it allows you to just take a step back and just observe and listen. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, he argues that um, you can kind of drop the defense um, or like any hesitation to kind of um, relate to those problems. So you, you just kind of observe and listen, and then that really like allows you well to relate to the character in the story and can really help you to maybe um, consider your own problem from a different perspective and just approach it in a different way. Um. Yeah. So, give me a minute. Uh, it's kind of like the, in some ways, that is the point of a lot of moral stories and myths, yeah. and it's really interesting that that can be applied to. It's a lot of work for the therapist, though, to find individual. Yeah, it's a very person-centered therapy. But. Yeah, definitely. 
So um, as you said before, um, stories um, are a very useful tool because they're easily remembered. So he also argues that if a story is told well, um, it can really sti stick out from the overall therapeutic conversation and it tends not to be forgotten. So he argues that in his personal um, experience with clients, um, they've alluded um, to stories told months before previously in the therapy. Mm. And um, I think this also really relates to my personal experience with reading the book, um, because sometimes um, I still just randomly remember some of the stories um, if I'm in a certain situation or like face certain struggles that relate to such stories and also tend to actually tell them to other people and use that very technique. Um, when a friend tells me about their problems, um, I tend to use sometimes some of the stories to um, maybe help them gain a perspective and see whether it relates to their own problems as well yeah. which has been really actually quite effective oh that's great yeah, yeah. more recently in a different article um, the um, psychotherapist Brandel explains um, how storytelling can be employed as a technique in um, psychoanalytic therapy with children so he uses the, ther the technique of rep reciprocal storytelling in which the therapist asks the child to compose an original imaginary story um, with make-believe characters, a beginning, middle and end, a moral lesson and a title. The therapist then goes on to explore the child's understanding of the story uh, without providing a direct interpretation and then responds with a story that uses the child's metaphor um, and actively clarifies and resolves any issues presented in the story. Um, by formulating a response um, as a story, the therapist considers the themes and conflicts in the story, representation and self, um, the affective tone and um, the le level of the child's defensiveness. Um, so responding within a story metaphor um, can be really helpful to diminish anxiety, keep the um, interaction with the child playful and um, help the child to be interested, engaged, especially because with children it's quite difficult to work on a cognitive level. Mm. So employing stories um, and storytelling and creation in um, psychotherapy can really help to talk with the children um, about their issues and problems in a more indirect way. Um, which I thought was really interesting and creative. That's really fascinating, yeah. yeah. And I think it absolves, I mean, again, this is a debate about when children feel guilt or <laughs> that kind of thing, but it's, well, it, even in adult clients, if you can map your issue onto a fictional third party or whatever you're struggling with, then it absolves some of the... It immediately makes you think more objective, objectively, but then also absolves some of the maybe guilt or personal difficulties you have if you were expressing that as yourself Definitely. and also yeah. forces you to empathize with the other characters which might represent other people in your life that could be um, influencing the issue Definitely. or problem so and it can also be used in many different uh, contexts so i just like to pick these two examples and with children it's rather evident but um, it actually has been used in many different types of client groups so um, people who have experienced trauma specifically with um, sexual abuse um, there's been like lots of um, therapies have been employing storytelling as a technique to empower clients um, to yeah face their uh, struggles mm. and yeah try to resolve the issues that's really cool 
I looked at going on to children's stories. Uh, I looked at representation in children's storybooks mm-hmm. because I've noticed recently in some of the podcasts I listen to, uh, which are <laughs> endless, that um, I listen to a podcast called The Guilty Feminist, which is about how oh, to. Oh, I listen to that. Too. Yeah, how to be. Um, yeah, the difficulties with trying to be a feminist in the modern world and trying to talk about intersectionality and considering those things. And uh, they had an author on there who had written a gender neutral book. So the protagonist in the book, it was a children's book, wasn't gendered and went on uh, explorations throughout this world. And that had me thinking about how the celebration of that book indicates that that is like very rare in a lot of storytelling. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was an in-depth analysis of the 100 best-selling illustrated books of 2018 by The Guardian and The Observer. And they found that only five bestsellers featured a black and minority ethnic character in a central role, with three of those being just one character written by the same author. (laughs) So not so great. And a child is 1.6 times more likely to read a book with a male rather than a female lead, and seven times more likely to read a story that has a male villain in it than a female one. Women can be villains too. (laughs) Uh, male characters outnumbered female characters in more than half the books only 11 characters of colour were given speaking parts across 100 books and 79 female characters spoke compared to 149 male characters and then I read a study about race representation so that was more I mean that covered gender and race uh, but Wilson in 2014 looked at race representations in children's picture books and says that they have picture books have a unique influence in promoting cultural values, norms, and beliefs by exposing exposing young children uh, who are susceptible to their images to a whole array of ideas and possibilities for people of different ethnic backgrounds and genders. Uh, children reading them are at this time, kind of age three to seven, developing their own racial identities and racial attitudes. And this is a critical period because this is when children start being able to differentiate between skin colours and learn labels associated with different skin colours and develop emotional responses to those. So it's very important if we want a society that celebrates diversity and allows people to empathise with uh, characters of different races or genders to themselves that that is represented in children's picture books. And I remember a few years ago there was a when moonlight came out there was a big celebration of like it being a black movie uh and having mostly i think maybe all i saw it i can't remember whether there were uh any white actors in it but then someone made the very good point of people who aren't white are expected to empathize with all white characters that often appear in media and because of the storybooks they read or like fiction and racial descriptions they do that whereas lots of people will see either uh, movies starring black or females as like movies for women or for black people mm-hmm. whereas i think a lot of people within those yeah non-white groups are just expected to empathize with characters like harry potter or <laughs> who's not necessarily white in the books that was yeah. another thing about mm-hmm. black hermione but we won't go into that <laughs> um and then i also looked into lgbtq plus representation in books so i couldn't find a study on it but stonewall who are a big group um a big charity and awareness group for lgbtq plus people uh warned that children's books 
depicting LGBTQ characters are vital for the well-being of young people exploring their sexual orientation and gender identity. So stories can introduce themes about tolerance, acceptance and celebration of differences. Struggling or those struggling with their identity can feel shame looking at LGBTQ plus books when they are treated as specialty items, which sometimes mm-hmm. they are. Like if things are labelled queer fiction, then that denormalises yeah. having... Uh, those characters in normal books and many children actually don't learn about lgbtq plus families or that those exist until they maybe are older and uh, meet someone who is part of that community Uh, because in rural areas it is less common for people to openly state that Mm -hmm. they are uh, not heterosexual or other sexual identities and um yeah then i also looked into gender representation in school books so uh in actual school textbooks gender bias is a massive issue there's lots of gender bias language women are often absent from the text especially in history books and it's filled with uh male characters and many employ traditional stereotypes about jobs that men and women perform uh so it was interesting to look at some of the pictures of like when uh, in foreign language books it was like cooking and there was a woman with a pan mm-hmm. yeah. and it was like builder it was always a man um, yeah. so there's still a lot of things that needs to be updated but when I was researching this I found some children's books I really liked uh, so there was one called Little Leaders Black, Bold Black Women in History which had some really lovely illustrations and talked about uh, very influential and amazing black women throughout history like Maya Angelou and all that kind of thing stories for boys who dare to be different which covers it was kind of an anti-toxic masculinity book where it covers a massive range of influential males throughout the world in loads of different roles people like Barack Obama but then also I guess you consider like more sensitive people like Gandhi who are mm-hmm. in touch with a sort of spirituality and that kind of thing Uh, and then my favorite one was my two mums and me which was just about a big array of families with two mothers who are just going about their daily lives running that kind of thing but it was a really cute book that sounds nice good shout outs for christmas presents yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) for any like nieces and nephews or daughters yeah yeah, it's a it's actually really interesting, and I think that's um it's a big issue where psychology needs to be a bit more present in the debate of how to construct um, school books, um, mm. especially with the I don't know at least in Germany there <coughs> is quite like a big debate with some political parties um, not wanting to include LGBTQ plus um, yeah couples or individuals. Um, in the books um, which is needed to normalize it yeah. as you just said mm. um, so I think like the psychology and research needs to be a bit more active and actually um, saying that it is very vital for mental um, well-being to include those characters and normalize having characters and of different um, yeah, yeah sexual orientations and races and such books mm. yeah but I, I feel like it should not and I mean you mentioned Moonlight it is not stopping with like children's books yeah. Uh, it's very important to carry that through, I don't know, have like young adult fiction with, um, I don't know, black characters in mainly white societies, for example. Um, and when you mentioned Moonlight, what came to my mind was actually uh, Black Panther, mm-hmm. the movie from Marvel, which also was celebrated <clears throat> for employing um, actually African actors. Yeah. 
um, and trying to capture the the African heritage. I mean, it's it's pure fiction, obviously, but like in a in a positive way, um, and actually having Ken, Ken, Kendrick Lamar um, as a controversial artist, first of all, uh, and, and, a, and an African American artist, um, have make the whole soundtrack. Um, so I think we're making some baby steps in the yeah. right direction, um, but it obviously needs to be increased. Yeah, there was a really interesting debate I had with uh, Jack, who wrote the music for the podcast, about Kanye West's lyrics. So um, he makes a lot of statements about his mental health and um, more controversial topics. Uh, he talks about violence and that kind of thing quite a lot in his music. And uh, Jack was making the very good point that um, just because he states those things in his music it's he's got a lot of artistic license to do that and with uh young black men particularly uh with rappers when they say things in their music there's an underlying assumption that what they're saying reflects their real life mm -hmm. and that's it's not something i believe but some people seem to believe that like they're not allowed to have that creative license because there's like some underlying assumption that in some people they don't have the intelligence to do it or something ridiculous yeah. uh, like that Ooh. and so there's a real contrast between like you know queen uh no one actually thought they had killed anyone in bohemian rhapsody yeah whereas in a lot of rap and um those kind of areas and where they i mean rap in itself is a difficult genre because some aspects of it uh sort of idealize uh violence and yeah sexism and that kind of thing but it's quite fascinating but but some artists actually do speak about what they lived through and yeah. that might be really brutal yeah um like if you listen to kendrick lamar um and there's evidence that he lived through some things uh and i mean why wouldn't he be allowed to talk about it yeah I mean, it just reflects on the issues going on yeah well thank you for being on the podcast and i hope you both have a wonderful christmas oh, thank you so much um do you want to do yeah do you want to do a big ho 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 Ho, 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 ho. Merry Christmas. <laughs> the Brainscape podcast was created by Amelia Hilton in association with the Glasgow University Psychology Society. This episode was written and recorded by Amelia Hilton, Jacqueline Detsgrob and Merlin Schaefer, with original music by Jack Harding. The episode was produced and edited by Amelia Hilton and was recorded in the University of Glasgow School of Psychology and Neuroscience Faculty Speech Lab. We will. There's, that's why the keys taped to the door. Oh, oh I thought it was broken. No, yeah. it's just a weird. I love how they use three. Three bits of tape. Big, big pieces of tape <laughs> <laughs> to, oh to put down this tiny key. <laughs>